1: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. This podcast contains explicit language.
2: Hello, and welcome back to Candidate Confessional. I am Sam Stein. And I'm Jason Shirkus. And Jason, you look beautiful as always in your blue hoodie. As always. Does that mean you've been noticing the hoodie for a couple months? Every single day. Well, it's my uniform, so... you noticed. So for this week's episode, we interviewed Wendy Davis, who for a few months during the 2014 election cycle went from being a hero of the abortion rights movement to a rising Democratic star in Texas to, well, uh potential upset gubernatorial candidate.
0: That's right. And everybody knows her for her famous filibuster. Mm -hmm. It became this amazing moment. It galvanized people online and across the state of Texas as we all watched her from the House floor.
1: I would hate to see other families denied the right to choose what is best for them. These decisions are hard enough without placing extra limits on them.
2: That night she became a hero and the moment became iconic in Texas history. Except for the fact that she went on to lose the election and she lost it Pretty badly. By a lot. Yeah, she got crushed. So when we first talked to Davis in the spring of 2014, it's a few months after that loss. And we spoke to her for a while about, well, the process of trying to do the seemingly impossible, which is to turn Texas blue. And unlike other people we've interviewed who look back at their own
0: campaigns with humor and anger, it was very clear she was still in mourning. Yeah, she actually copped to having regrets
2: from the race that she ran, which is rare. But then something fortuitous happened. Yeah, so we're really bad at editing these things. And in between the time it took to do the first interview and the time it took to produce this podcast, who shows up at our office but Wendy Davis? So we got her into the studio and we talked to her about the campaign trail. And we asked her the one question that we forgot to ask the first time, which is, where are those shoes you famously wore during the filibuster?
1: They certainly sold a lot of those shoes (laughs) as a consequence of that filibuster. And honestly, one of my favorite things to read that I did read... Ah, uh, were the comments on Amazon the customer reviews to those shoes? They're still up and they're really hysterical. Give and us I really one, appreciated give us one the way remember. people weighed in. Oh, just you know, these shoes are great for standing for hours on end, fighting <laughs> for reproductive freedoms, things like that. That's <laughs> awesome.
2: awesome. Uh where, where are those shoes now?
1: They are safely tucked away in my closet on a high shelf.
2: <laughs> You're—they're not like you know, in the Smithsonian some sort of museum or, or anything like
1: that. Nope. Someone can come and get those shoes. You gotta, you gotta lock those I know. Up. Maybe but I maybe I need deposit. to go put them somewhere else. Now that I've said that, like a, yeah. dep- like
0: a safety deposit box.
1: Beyond the bluster,
2: behind the bunting, past the posters, after the ads, the campaign picks up, and the motorcade moves on. What happens when the votes are counted?
0: And democracy. Doesn't go your way.
3: This is Candidate Confessional, a HuffPost podcast.
0: I'm Sam Stunn. <laughs> okay. I'm sorry.
2: Actually, I'm Sam Stunn, and I'm Jason Cherkis. and we approve this podcast.
0: Do you remember the moment you decided you wanted to run for governor? The precise moment.
3: I remember the moment I first began thinking about it. Um, It was in my third legislative session, and I was very frustrated with the direction that we were heading as a state. Um, We had a governor who was setting our agenda or driving the agenda based on what he was saying that he would sign or veto that was in large part coordinated with his desire to run for president. Um, And, of course, that's Governor Rick Perry. As the session wore on um, and those frustrations increased after the governor vetoed an equal pay bill that I had successfully passed out of the Senate and my colleague, Symphonia Thompson, had successfully passed out of the House, uh, which took a great deal of work to to organize a bipartisan effort in a Republican-controlled House and Senate to get that bill passed. Um, after he vetoed that bill, for me it was kind of uh, a turning point that it really was time for a change, and I felt like Texans wanted to hear what an alternative might look like.
0: Was this this was obviously before the filibuster, and were you was that also sort of part of your thinking as you went into the filibuster? Was that this could be. Uh, sort of a defining moment for you?
3: Not at all. Um, and in fact, I had filibustered the education cuts in Texas in the prior legislative session, and there wasn't a tremendous amount of attention given to that filibuster at all. I felt like the reproductive rights filibuster was going to be similar to my prior experience. I had no idea or no ability to comprehend the number of people that would ultimately watch that day and what would happen on social media as a consequence of that. But certainly after the filibuster was over, I realized that I had a newfound platform, um, a group of people that would now be paying attention to what was happening in Texas, both within the state and outside the state. And I did feel like that was going to give me an opportunity to run for governor uh, with a platform that I might not otherwise have had
2: when when you got off the uh, off the floor of that filibuster, um, obviously you couldn't have been fully aware as you mentioned of what was happening uh, on Twitter or on the social media networks or you know in the general media conversation. What was the first conversation like with your aides, and how did they explain to you what exactly had happened outside of your, you know, vision?
3: When my filibuster was called to an end, and while my Democratic colleagues were debating parliamentary maneuverings to try to get us to the midnight deadline, I had walked over to the side rail, uh, and one of my staff members showed me the tweet that President Obama had sent out and she told me that there were almost 200,000 people who were live streaming the video, which just floored me. And I was grateful that throughout the day, I wasn't aware of that. I think it would have created another layer of stress for me. Uh, <laughs> so I
1: was
3: really pleased to just have my head down. And I obviously knew that people, Had gathered in the Capitol, and I could tell that something truly unique was going on because I had never felt the Capitol come to life like it was during that day. I could literally feel underneath my feet the roar of the building as it would come to life and quiet back down and come to life and quiet back down. So I understood that something extraordinary was happening. But it wasn't until very late in that evening when I, when I talked to my aide at the side rail that I truly understood how many people had engaged in what was going on there that day.
2: And, and what was the craziest email you got, or maybe the most unexpected email you got from whether it was associate or a friend or family member after that filibuster concluded?
3: I was surprised to see um, a number of ho- high-profile people who were engaging Um, Lena Dunham being one of them, a number of people in the, the movie and television industry that were watching and were forwarding out the tweets. But really the thing that was most striking to me was the emails that we continued to get through the day from people who wanted to share their stories. And we had worried that we were going to run out of material, Um, but it became pretty clear pretty fast as those stories were coming in that there were a lot of people in Texas and outside the state of Texas who felt very deeply and and understood this issue at a very personal level and wanted to weigh in on it. And I was really struck by that.
0: Did you feel after the filibuster and, and receiving all those letters, that you felt, com- did it compel you to run? Did you feel like, okay, I have to run now? I have to seek, out- seek the governorship?
3: It certainly felt um, more of a responsibility, I guess, for lack of a better way to say it. I felt a responsibility to people like those that we heard from that day and after that day to speak for them. Um, and really, that's what that day was about in the Texas Senate, but it certainly became clear to me that there were thousands and thousands of people in our state who felt like their voices weren't being heard. And I truly did feel a responsibility to them.
2: What you were trying to do was a monumental task uh, to turn Texas uh, fully blue um, after years of years of red politics. So when you're sitting down with your advisors, obviously they are going to get you a picture that shows a path to victory. But they certainly must have told you where the biggest challenges were, and they must have given you, for instance, a dollar figure or something like that, that you had to raise in order to compete in those media markets that you talked about. So give us a little bit more detail. What were those early conversations like, and how daunting were they?
3: Well, ideally, we would have raised $60 million. That is really what it would have taken to communicate at the level that we felt we needed to communicate. And that felt overwhelming, as you can imagine. Yeah. Um, I think I had around 800,000 in my campaign account, so <laughs> I was you know, essentially starting at, at almost ground zero mm-hmm. when it came to the fundraising. I did feel like I had a unique opportunity to fundraise because we had caught the attention and focus of people not only around the state, but outside the state as well and I have always been very successful at fundraising, nothing uh, nearly at the level that I was going to be expected to do for this race. but I'm pleased at what we were able to accomplish. We raised $43 million in the race. We stayed on par with my Republican opponent throughout the entire campaign in terms of the amount that was raised. The disadvantage that we had was that he started with twenty seven million, I think if I'm remembering correctly, in the bank.
2: Did they give you a did they give you a percentage ch- chance of winning by any chance early on? Did they say, listen, even if you do everything right, you raise sixty million dollars, you talk to all the right voters, you hit the right issues, you turn out, you know, everyone you could turn out, you may not still win. Or were they totally optimistic about how it could play out?
3: There was certainly no one who was being overly optimistic about <laughs> The opportunity to win, Um, (laughs) as you noted earlier, it had been 20 years since we had elected a statewide Democrat, Um, actually 24 years. In 1990 was the last successful gubernatorial election for a Democrat, and of course that was Ann Richards. We really hadn't had any sort of an educational opportunity to really engage voters to create a robust voter file Um, And so we were starting at a tremendous disadvantage in that regard. We had a a voter file that was absolutely uh, a mess. It was incredibly outdated, and we spent an enormous amount of time, energy, and money um, cleaning up the voter file, and a great deal of our volunteer work went to that end as well, Mm. Um, making phone calls into voters' households and and finding that they were no longer, of course, there, and really helping us get that information cleaned up. What happened post-filibuster was it engaged a lot of people who otherwise wouldn't have cared about the outcome of a race in Texas. But it also gave me an entree to talk to people outside the state about why they ought to care about what happens in a state like Texas. Um, Obviously, if we are able to demonstrate in a statewide election that we can elect a Democrat here, we are suddenly in play in presidential elections. And the fact that we haven't been in play in presidential elections has significantly contributed to the fact that we have such a disengaged electorate on the Democratic side. We don't have uh, presidential uh, election time campaigning going on. We don't have the television commercials or any of the other robust activities that happen in battleground states. And as a consequence of that, we've got a, a real disengaged electorate here that just isn't accustomed to being talked to and isn't accustomed to really participating um, in the election.
2: You must have been at a, an event where you're like, wow, I can't believe what a disaster the Democratic Party has become in this state. I mean, just the voter file, for instance, seems so illuminating that there wasn't an up-to-date voter file.
3: That infrastructure that you mentioned just wasn't there. Um, You had kind of the diehard party loyal, you know, in counties across the state, but they hadn't really been able to build much of a, a volunteer base because they hadn't had anything to build it around. And at the same time that we were dealing with that uh, lack of infrastructure, Battleground Texas, um, which was the the group that came in to try to organize the field campaign, they were meeting with some resistance from county elected officials or county Democratic um, longtime worker bees and, and supporters of Democratic candidates who felt like their um, ways of doing things and, and their, their work in the past was, was going unrespected, and so there was this tension, too, that existed between people who had been out there doing really good work and who felt like these new upstarts were coming in and telling them how to do things in a way that um, wasn't inclusive.
0: Do you think Battleground Texas could have handled that a little better, just in sort of their communication to the local party loyalists and the people that have done the work before?
3: I do think it could have been done better. Um, I think in the in the context of how quickly everything had to ramp up, um, you know, there's some certainly understandable failures on the part of Battleground and certainly on the part of my campaign as well.
2: put a little blame on yourself there uh, saying you, the, you, your campaign had some failures too. Was there one or two things that you think, you know, you look back and you say, damn, I wish I had maybe done that differently?
3: I do. Um, in, the, in the messaging, and for me as a candidate, this is always the hardest part. Um, how do you make sure that you come through to voters? Um, but I've also learned in prior campaigns that Making sure voters are aware of the weaknesses of your opponent is very effective and important as well, so long as you're playing fair um, and you're pointing out things that you believe go to the credibility of that person's capacity to govern. And we did that in our race, and we made that much more of a focus than we made introducing me to the voters. And if I had it to do all over again, I would shift the emphasis um, and put much more on helping voters to know more about me and to see the passion that I have for populist issues and for really fighting for the people that I represent and understanding a fuller picture of me as a candidate than I think we showed them. People want something to vote for, you know, they want something to believe in. And I don't feel like I offered that as well as I could have.
0: And then you you, there was that controversial ad that you guys ran about about your can't your opponent, Mr. Abbott, uh, Governor Abbott now Um, you know, about his sort of hypocrisy on on issues around disability, I think. I think that was sort of
2: the gist of it. Abbott argued a woman whose leg was amputated was not disabled because she had an artificial limb. He ruled against a rape victim who sued a corporation for failing to do a background check on a sexual predator.
3: Certainly at the time, I felt like it was a a fair hit um, because it was aimed at pointing out his... Hypocrisy, you know, as a person who had reaped the benefit of a civil justice system that had rightfully um, compensated him for a tragic injury. And then changing um, and trying to close that door or pull that ladder up for other people who would come behind him. I felt like that really said a lot about his character as a person.
0: Coming up, we talked to Davis about a controversial Dallas Morning News story that picked apart her personal life.
2: I'm wondering what it was like to watch as people started picking apart your story, and specifically what it was like to read that Wayne Slater piece about poking holes in your own story.
3: It was very difficult. Um, it was incredibly frustrating because the attack lines were inaccurate and unfair. And unfortunately, they very quickly gained a life of their own, and it was almost impossible to rein it back in at that point. Quite honestly, I feel that as a woman, my story was viewed differently than it would have been had I been a male candidate. How so? And looking... Well, because um, I don't think that male candidates would ever be called into question about who paid for their education. Um, It was a very sexist way of looking at things. For example, this conversation about my former husband's contribution to my law school um, experience. We were a married couple. Um, any other married couple, were the candidate a a male, that issue just never would have arisen. Um, The issue about uh, my children and my capacities as a mother, um, those would never have arisen had I been a man. Those questions never would have been asked. The New York Times uh, magazine story that ran during my race about me ran under the headline, can Wendy Davis have it all? That question would never be asked of a male candidate. And so there was this perspective that was brought to the table that had um, some... certainly some gender-coded messaging in it that was meant very much, um, certainly as it was coming out of my opponent's camp, was meant very much to invite people to view me as uniquely female and um, to have betrayed my role as a woman at that and not be viewed as someone who should be lauded for her incredible accomplishments in a lifetime of, of work that had placed her where she was as gubernatorial candidate.
0: I'm wondering, like, what what it was like that day when that story came out and what the campaign and you decided to do as a way to combat that.
3: It felt overwhelming to to knock it down um, because it gained so much steam and and with such inaccuracy so fast. Um, And, of course, the best that we could do quickly was to put together an accurate timeline of my biography and... Make sure that we were pushing back on the press outlets that were reporting things inaccurately. Um, but at that point, it was, it was, you know, too little, too late, quite honestly. And had I to do it over again, understanding that my greatest strength um, as a public servant really has been the fact that my work has been formed on the basis of my past experiences, I would have understood that that asset would likely come under attack. Um, Certainly, smart political operatives do that. They take your greatest strength, and they work to turn them into a weakness. Karl Rove is famous for that, and he was certainly a part of my opponent's campaign. I think that's something we should have anticipated, uh, and we should have been much more careful as the campaign was Um, talking about my bio to have every C Frost and every I dotted so that we didn't open ourselves up to any criticism about it whatsoever.
0: I just wanted to know, just ask, you know, the effect that it had on your family. All the questions were about your t- your sort of timeline, your history.
3: Democratic rising star, Texas gubernatorial candidate Wendy Davis is firing back against allegations that she misrepresented her compelling personal history. For example, Davis had been 21, not 19, not a teen mother when she divorced and was living in a trailer park alone with her daughter.
0: And I'm wondering you know, how how it was for your family to have to read those stories and uh, go through it, you know, as they sort of, every inch of your life got vetted 18 different ways.
3: For my daughters, Amber and Drew, it was especially difficult for them to hear my credibility as a mother being called into question. And only those two girls really know um, what it was like to be raised by Wendy Davis. Um, And I think it's fair to say that I think I did a pretty damn good job, and they know that at the end of the day, more than anything else, their success and happiness are the most important things to me. We know that truth. We own that truth as a family, and so to see me being poked at. How much time did she spend with her daughters while she was in Harvard Law School? Um, these sorts of questions were very upsetting to them.
0: And how did you ex- how did you explain it? I mean, did you do you remember talking to them about the article, or or do they talk? Did they ask you yeah. questions like, why are they doing this to you, or why why do you have to go
3: through this? For sure. I mean, all of that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, they spent a great deal of time crafting their letter response. Um, and as opposed to this being something that the campaign would do, they wanted very much for this to be something that was in their voice and was their message. And they spent days and days and many hours working on saying exactly what they wanted to say and, and in the hope that they would be able to convey to people who I truly was as their mother. Um, and. You know, while I was really proud of them for putting all of that work and effort into that, it also made me very sad that my daughters ever had to even do something like that. Let me ask
2: you about um, some of the other uh, things that popped up during the campaign, mainly uh, the policies uh, that you uh, had to deal with and, and some of the more difficult ones. Um, I'm speaking specifically about open carry. Um, I think in a post campaign interview, you, you conceded that, um, well, basically that you, uh, offered your support for open carry as, uh, you know, a expediency of the campaign and that you regretted doing it.
3: That position was taken in the heat of the moment. And it is my biggest regret about uh, my own actions during that campaign, I was literally in an airport um, on the phone making a quick decision with someone on my campaign team for a story that was going to run the next day about what our positions were, mine and, and my opponents, on open carry. And I felt like giving everyone the ability to say no could ameliorate um, saying that open carry was okay that if municipalities and counties and private businesses and school districts and colleges could still have the power to say no, then I could be okay with open carry. But at the end of the day, and especially as the campaign wore on and watching some of these um, open carry advocates who were showing up in public businesses, um, private businesses, excuse me, Target and Starbucks and elsewhere, with their weapons strapped on and understanding the threat and intimidation that was presented to people who were witness to that i really came to feel that there was simply no way i could support open carry in any of its form
2: why did you uh, make the choice that you did on the campaign trail
3: I felt like it would take the issue off the table and remove what was going to take away from the real conversations that needed to be taking place. We needed to be talking about education. We needed to be talking about Medicaid expansion. We needed to be talking about wage wage stagnation and pay equity for women. Those were really the more compelling and important and burning issues for the campaign. And what I worried about was that Open Carry was going to drag everything down with it and would become kind of the focal highlight issue of the day. But as I said, um, post-election, and as the election wore on, as the campaign wore on, it really ate at me. And it, it truly was the first time I had ever taken a position that I wasn't, Fully one hundred percent behind, and I wouldn't ever do it again.
2: The twenty-week uh, abortion ban—you know—I guess the impression that everyone got from the filibuster was that you know this is something you were vehemently opposed to, and then during the course of the campaign, that became a bit more complicated.
3: I was a hundred percent consistent on my feelings about reproductive rights. There. Is no room for a legislature to make these decisions for a woman and her family. These must be left to a woman and her doctor. And on the the 20-week ban, while I certainly understand that there are people who abhor the idea that that would ever occur, I also know from personal experience that there are issues that arise that compel women to have to make incredibly painful and difficult decisions later in pregnancy than 20 weeks. We have constitutional protections in place about the appropriate uh, term at which a woman can make a decision to terminate a pregnancy. And I think we have to respect those.
2: Wendy, when when did you know you were going to lose?
3: I am the eternal optimist, and I, <laughs> I really,
2: don't tell I, me it was the night of.
3: No, I really didn't know for sure I was going to lose until really a few days out. Um, barring some miracle, you know, it was definitely headed in that direction, and there just came a point at which the the you know belief is a powerful thing um, the voters. Believed I wasn't going to win, and when voters don't think you're going to win, it really changes the dynamic in terms of the people that show up and participate in the outcome of an election. And we, you know, could see that happening bit by bit. Um, but how so? really it, it's Just in you know the polling and and what we were seeing in terms of people's belief about whether they thought I could win.
2: What was the most depressing moment on the trail, and what was the most uplifting moment on the trail?
3: Gosh. Uh, I know the, the tough, the tough questions here. <laughs> the most depressing um, really had to have been when the whole bio slap occurred and just the, the treatment I felt that I received in the press as, as a woman candidate. Um, Most uplifting would probably be the many African American church services that I attended throughout the campaign. It was where I really got to connect with my own spirituality and to share that and to share my testimony, my story, my passion with people in a way that I felt was most real and most reflective of who I am as a person and of who I was as a candidate.
2: Did you did you ever feel like the expectations placed on you were either overwhelming or just too much? I mean, you were supposed to you were the personification of Texas becoming blue. That seems like a big burden for one candidate to bear.
3: It's a huge burden. I mean, I You know, I think anyone looking at a race such as ours, the realistic expectation would be, did you move the ball forward? I think we definitely moved the ball forward, Um, but to believe that one person after a 20-year drought can suddenly deliver the flood, um, that expectation is probably unrealistic, although Again, I didn't go into that race believing I couldn't win it. I wouldn't have gone into it believing that, and I wouldn't have asked people to contribute their financial resources and their time if I didn't believe from the outset that we had a chance of being able to carry it off.
2: That's fun. it's You led me to my next question, which is the asking people to commit their financial resources. I have to imagine that you had some interesting conversations with out-of-state donors about Texas politics, and that you had to, you know, sort of explain, I guess, what Texas politics were to out-of-state donors.
3: Um,
2: you can be honest with us.
3: Somewhat. I <laughs> somewhat. I I think that they really respected, you know, that we understood best how to message to and run a campaign in Texas. Um, there were certainly times when. I would hear from people who would say, you know, you're not talking about abortion enough. Are you backing away from your position on abortion? Um, And that was a little frustrating to me because what we understood and certainly what I understand to this day, there was no question that voters in Texas understand my position on reproductive rights and my uh, position on abortion. Um, And what we had to work to achieve, of course, was to round me out more in people's eyes and for them to understand and see that my long public service had included fights on many, many issues um, and that I would be a governor who would be focused on a broad set of issues, not just the issue of women's health, abortion and and other reproductive rights.
2: Tell us about election night
3: that day was really hard because i could just see in the eyes of my team that we'd lost you know um we'd come out of early vote we sort of understood what the likely outcome was going to be based on who had voted and and what the turnout in our our um voter file had been and it was just a it was a really hard day because I knew that we were driving towards that night on the stage of having to concede um, and just the the concern that I felt for all of the people who spent so much time and effort and heart and passion working on that race, you know the feeling that you've let them down it was very hard.
2: I have no concept whatsoever about what it's like to give a concession speech. Not saying I've won everything I've run for. I've never run for anything. But I'm kind of curious. I, I'm genuinely curious what it's like to actually have to deliver a concession speech.
3: Um, you know, it's an opportunity to show your gratitude. No question about that. You, you show that whether you win or you lose. And there's there's a gift in that. You know, there's a true gift in being able to do that. But it is hard to to say to people, I'm sorry that we didn't pull it off.
1: <laughs> you know, I'm
3: sorry that no matter how hard you all worked and how hard we worked, we didn't pull it off this time. You know, I, I tried so hard to keep it all together and not to cry, but I couldn't help but cry that night. Um, yeah, it, it was it was a really hard moment.
2: When you woke up the next morning and it's all over... What first of all is—is is there a sense of relief that it's all over, and how do you get your life back to a semblance of normalcy?
3: The great thing about winning an election like that is that when it's over, you immediately are regrouping to put your team together to to you know serve in the elected office that you've that you've won. When you lose, it's just a complete deflate, <laughs> uh, And it it, it isn't... It, there's not any sense of relief in it because you're grieving, you know, the fact that that you didn't succeed on behalf of the people that were counting on you. So I, I went through certainly a period of what I would call grieving. Um, for lack of a better word, I guess grieving is a very appropriate word for it. There is grief in... It being over, um, losing that day-to-day connection that you had with people, fighting for the things that matter to you passionately, and for me, facing, you know, for the first time in 15 years, not being in public service.
2: That was Wendy Davis, who joined us in a phone call back in March of 2015. The phone call explains why the audio was so crummy, but we got lucky. Wendy Davis came to our office in October of 2015, and she was gracious enough to give us a few more minutes of her time. At what point did you start to realize that your skin had grown tougher and thicker?
1: It happened slowly over time. Um, I went through several election contests in my city council role, and that was really good training ground for that uh, skin thickening. And then my first Senate race was really, really tough and thickened it quite a bit. And then my experience as a woman in the Texas Senate um, I was only, I think, the 12th or 13th woman ever elected in the entire history of the Texas Senate. Damn. It is truly the definition of the good old boys club. And you've got to learn how to be pretty tough to fight your way there and to make sure that your voices and your constituents' voices are heard. Do you read heard. clubs
2: about yourself? Be honest.
1: I did, but I stopped. You Googled stopped. No, 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 no. I don't even read. I don't put my name into Twitter. I, I don't do any of that anymore because you can find yourself in the negative echo chamber and it's a dangerous place to yeah.
2: be. You're the abortion Barbie.
1: So when Eric Erickson called me abortion Barbie, which um, ironically, he came to Megan Fox's, or excuse me, Megan Kelly's defense uh, when, right, when yeah. Donald Trump was being misogynistic uh, about her. Um, he obviously was trying to capitalize on what he knew would be a negative connotation that would would work. And sadly for women, those kinds of labels do work in the context of a, a campaign. What did
0: you think when you heard it first?
1: I've heard so many things in my years as a candidate and an, an elected office holder. I was really struck by how upset many of my uh, supporters became. And in fact, when I went to California for a fundraising event and the posters had been put up around L.A., uh, the woman who was hosting the event was literally almost brought to tears. She was so upset and angry about it. Uh, For me, it's kind of, you know, water off a duck's back because (laughs) I'm so accustomed to uh, what it's like to be a woman in elected office in a state like Texas. Um, But we ought to be that offended by those things. And we ought to really be speaking out and pushing back against them when they happen.
0: You saw the silence of the Republicans when Trump has attacked women on for the way they look or he had that attack against Rosie O'Donnell at the deb- the debate. No no male republican on that stage said, "Wait a minute, that's you're being, you know, you're out of line."
1: What really struck me about Donald Trump's misogynistic comments in that first debate were not necessarily the reactions of the men on the stage or in the audience. Um, it was disappointing to see that none of them rose to the occasion and actually responded in, in the fact that he was dismissing women and, and being so derogatory. What was very um, surprising to me to see was the reaction of women in the audience. So when Megyn Kelly pointed out his derogatory statements, he doubled down on them. And when he did, he got great laughter and applause. And if you remember, the camera panned the audience. And what was so disappointing was to see the number of women who were applauding and laughing at those comments. And I really think that is a commentary about where we are in the fight for women's equality. And that unless and until women are demonstrating respect for each other, we're not going to realize the equality that we all deserve.
2: We asked you this last time, um, but I wonder if your uh, thought process has uh, progressed at all about returning to politics.
1: I miss being in the ring. I miss it very, very much. I can and tell. I, I felt like it was the place that I was really meant to be. It's where my life struggles and my education came together in a way that I think really served the people that I was elected to serve well. I would love to have the honor to do that at some point again in the future. And I am definitely going to keep my eyes open to that opportunity. And if one presents itself, I, I will run.
2: Thank you to Wendy Davis for joining us not once but twice to talk about her run for governor of Texas. And a big thanks to Christine Canetta, the editor of this podcast, who turns our talking into something a little bit more magical. I'm Sam Stein. And I'm Jason Cherkis. And if you join us next week, you get to hear t Tim Pawlenty, talk about his run for the presidency in 2012. As always, you can find Candidate Confessional on iTunes, or you can find us on the Huffington Post. That's HuffingtonPost.com. Please tune in next week. And as always, happy trails.